Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 33, Fight and Flight. Harry had no idea what Hermione was planning or even whether she had a plan. He walked half a pace behind her as they headed down the corridor outside Umbridge's office, knowing it would look very suspicious if he appeared not to know where they were going. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You should go see my dear friend Vanessa while she's in London on June 18th and in Paris on June 22nd. Yeah, keep me company. I'm going to miss Casper and Ariana. She has no one to talk about Harry Potter with while she travels. It's true. I'm traveling with Julia, and she doesn't let me talk actually at all. (laughs) She's like, stop talking. And I'm like, that's so rude. Casper, today's theme is inheritance, and you have a story for us. I do. When my mom turned 50, she wanted to take our whole family on a big trip. And... My mother's parents had died when I was relatively young. I was six. And especially my grandfather was always a bit of a mystery. And I'd always known that he had grown up outside of Holland. He'd grown up in Indonesia, which when he was young was a Dutch colony. And so my mother really wanted to see the house that her father had grown up in. And so she booked six return tickets to Indonesia and off we went. And we spent three weeks traveling around Bandung, which was the old capital where his house was. His father had worked in the Dutch colonial post office. And you can imagine like walking around in this fascinating modern country, the largest Muslim country in the world, beautiful natural landscapes, you know, wonderful tourist destination, all sorts of ways. And at the same time, this really like icky familial connection And not just with my family, but with Dutch culture broadly, there's all of these Dutch words that are still in use, you know, on posters and in the language in Indonesia. And when we mentioned to people like that we were Dutch, I was kind of ready for this retribution and and kind of shame and guilt. But people were extremely friendly and were like, oh, I know some Dutch or like I used to play baseball in Holland or just the most interesting and random stories. But my sisters and I felt this constant and complicated connection and responsibility for, you know, the horrific treatment of Indonesia by Holland while it was under colonial rule. You know, obviously, I didn't do anything. I wasn't alive. But nonetheless, I have this responsibility. I've inherited this connection to this country. And I felt kind of overwhelmed by the complexity of not wanting to do something that would make it worse, but also not wanting to ignore it, trying to talk about it as a family. And it just made me think how inheritance can be this very complex thing. We can inherit physical items when when someone passes away, but we can also inherit stories and connections to things that we maybe really 
don't want or don't feel comfortable with. So in this chapter, I'm really interested to see, and I think we do, how things beyond the characters in the chapter really shape them and the way they act with one another. I think you're absolutely right. I think we see all sorts of inheritances in this chapter, and I can't wait to talk to you about them. But first, let us artfully remind people of everything that happens. Like we're inheriting the story and we need to pass it on in a 30-second snippet? Well done. I couldn't figure out a way to do it. (laughs) And this is why we're a team. (laughs) Okay, Vanessa, 30 seconds on the clock. Remind us what happens. Here we go. So Hermione is like, there's something in the deep, deep, deep in the forest. And Umbridge is like, okay. And um, Harry is like, since we're going first, can I have a wand? And she's like, my life is worth more than yours, Harry, which is the creepiest thing she's ever said. And um, and they run into all these centaurs and the centaurs take Umbridge off. And then they're, uh, Hermione and Harry are like negotiating with the centaurs and Grop comes and saves them. And then um, Ginny and the rest of them who don't matter as much come. And then they're like, we can fly on the, the invisible horses. And Luna's like, here they are. I did such a good job. What are those horses called? Thestrals. Thestrals. I was like, they can fly on the centaurs. Don't say centaurs, <laughs> Vanessa. They'd be so offended. They are not common mules. They are not common mules. I know. Anyway, can you maybe mention people other than Ginny? Help a girl out. I'm ready. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. So Hermione, Harry, and Umbridge are walking into the forest, and, and Hermione's making as much noise as possible, and Harry's like, why are you doing that? And she's like, I have a cunning plan. And then suddenly they arrive in a clearing, and there's like 50 centaurs, and they shoot arrows, and they're like scary and rare. And they're like, oh, you, what are you doing, woman? And Umbridge is the most, if she was trained in diplomacy, there was a hashtag fail here, because she's like throwing out every, you know, offensive remark in the book, and they carry her away. And then Grope gets shot in the face with these arrows, and the blood falls on Harry and Hermione, and then and they go away. Oh, well, you know, it was like a sandwich. You provided the bread. <laughs> I provided the filling. Casper, I think that you like beautifully illustrated the complexities of inheritance in your story. And I'm wondering where you saw that in the chapter. Yeah, it really struck me in this specific sentence that I found in the confrontation between the centaurs, Harry, Hermione and Umbridge. And one of the centaurs says they already have the arrogance of their kind because Hermione is saying like, oh, thank you for, you know, getting rid of Umbridge. I really appreciated you helping us out. So the centaurs are saying to Hermione, you know, like, we're not here to help you. We're, We're not instruments of your grand plan, which, of course, was always their pushback against Dumbledore and why they rejected Firenze so much. And so this phrase, they already have the arrogance of their kind, speaks so directly to this idea of inheritance, right? Harry and Hermione are still children, but they're now, you know, solid teenagers. And so they're on that cusp of being seen as adults, at least by the centaurs. They are no longer fools. They are no longer fools. Indeed, exactly. No, I am a Porsche centaur. Um <laughs> And the centaurs see in them, you know, that they've inherited the the worldview, the judgments, the way to think about how you can instrumentalize other people. Now, that struck me on two accounts. One is just the way that humans operate, right? We're all Slytherins at heart, perhaps. But more importantly, that this is something they have inherited from Dumbledore. And so there's there's a specific inheritance here from their mentor and teacher that really struck me as kind of hidden beneath the text. Does that resonate with you? Yes, completely. I think that there are multiple inheritances that Hermione and Harry are dealing with here. I also think that they feel like Hagrid has built a relationship with them and like we're friends with Hagrid. And so maybe 
I think that they understand because of their relationship with friends, A, that it's not a simple relationship with centaurs, but that they sort of believe that if you go into the forest with like open hands and saying, we're friends with Hagrid, that they're counting on that inheritance, the inheritance of Hagrid's goodwill more than they should. Right. Did they not read book two? I'm just trying to remember about the Aragog story. This did not go well. Harry remembers Aragog, right? He's walking through the forest and is like, I know where we're going and this is bad news. And Hermione wasn't there, so she doesn't have that same memory. That's so true. I absolutely think that Hermione and Harry are acting in entitled and exploitative ways here, right? They don't know how to get out of a problem, and so they're making it someone else's problem, a more marginalized group's problem, and that is unacceptable. I also think that they are teenagers who are in a very desperate situation in which they don't see another way out. And I'm not saying, when in crisis, exploit your neighbor. (laughs) But I do think that... When in crisis, you're not doing your best diplomacy in that moment, and you're just scrambling because you're in crisis mode. Well, this is such an interesting question, because we're seeing this inheritance of perspectives and attitudes towards others being passed down with Harry and Hermione, but we're also seeing it with the centaurs. You know, they they keep talking about we are an ancient people. You know, we do not acknowledge your magical laws. We are a race apart. All of the language that we're hearing from the centaurs says, you know, that we are different. You know, we're not engaging with your world. And yet we have seen with Forense that there are some, at least one centaur, who says, you know, I want to change the story of our culture. You know, actually, there are bigger fish to fry than us being separate. You know, I feel like the centaurs are like the Switzerland of Europe in in the middle of war. And like there's some Swiss people being like, you know, if you're neutral on a moving train, you're actually participating in the problem. It raises the question for me of like, when are we responsible for the views or the worldviews or the, the attitudes that we've inherited? And we could say that, you know, Harry and Hermione are still children. And so that's forgivable. But part of me actually wants to turn the mirror to the centaurs and say, like, look, a war is brewing. Voldemort is back. There is a greater issue at play. And your isolationism actually might not serve you in the end, right? Like, if the Death Eaters come to the forest, who's going to help the centaurs? So there's an interesting question of when is there a responsibility to change the inheritance that we've received? And this is a question that just about every marginalized group grapples with, right? Like there was a lesbian separatist movement during the feminist second wave movement in the 70s, right? And W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington were having this argument, right, about should black people be trying to integrate or should they be separatist? And these questions are live and they are live for people in different ways for different reasons. It's also a question with indigenous peoples, right, where they've been forced into isolation and now they're like, well, now we're in isolation, so leave us the heck alone. And I also think that then on the individual level, which you're bringing up with Harry and Hermione, there are people who decide to go to historically black colleges and universities in order to have that experience of identity formation in an entirely black context, but then go out into the world and live in a more integrated way or then go out into the world and continue, you know, really trying to live entirely within their community. So I I think that We need all of these answers in these huge original sins of racism and slavery and stealing lands from people and imperialism and colonialism, right? These these sins cannot be fixed with one strategy. We need all the strategies. I think that 
we are at our peril to believe that the few centaurs who are speaking out are actually representative of what every centaur thinks, right? There are like 70 of them or whatever there. And like, I'm not saying that you were stereotyping against centaurs. The only voices that we hear are this like separatist movement idea. But I just like, we know that at least one has said like, that's not how I want to do it. And I just also want to validate that like, separatism has its place. Well, separatism often can lead to survival. I mean, it's a strategy of continuity and inheritance, right? If you're worried that a culture is going to disappear, the way that you keep it alive is by, by keeping yourself separate from the dominant society, which is kind of chipped away at until there's nothing left. And I love what you're saying, the danger of a single story here, that we're hearing maybe two, three, four voices of 50. And we can't we can't know that everyone agrees. In fact, as you said, Firenze has already left. So we know that at least one publicly disagrees. You know, this is making me think of my grandmother, different side of the family grandmother, who I remember when I was very young, because my uncle's gay, used a, a very old-fashioned word for gay in Dutch, homophile, which is like pre-homosexual. It's like homophile. Like it's, it's, it, it sounds like either a disease or a joint or something. I don't know. And I remember like hearing her language change with time kind of an upwards inheritance rather than a downwards inheritance, right? To learn not from your elders or people who have gone before, but to actually reorient yourself and be like, okay, I'm going to inherit from a younger generation. And so part of me is wondering if that's the invitation in this moment between Harry and Hermione and the centaurs is for the centaurs to see like, look, these kids, you know, they didn't involve themselves in Voldemort's plan for fun. Like they've been thrown into this and so are we. Like here we are in the forest and we're now part of this epic battle. Should we follow these young people's lead and inherit from them the kind of the courage and the and the vision to fight for justice. And you see exactly that moment between Umbridge and Hermione, right? So Umbridge has like maybe your great grandmother's language of like <laughs> yeah. you half breeds near human intelligence using just this horrible language. And then Hermione is trying to correct for it, but is still sort of saying offensive things. Right. Because she just like she hasn't been taught the right language. She hasn't deprogrammed herself. Exactly. It's not even that Hermione's using the wrong words. It's the assumptions about how this group of centaurs should act, right? She's not using offensive language, but she's still assuming that they're there to help her. Well, you know, just to defend Hermione for a second, children just believe that adults are there to help them, right? (laughs) Like, I mean, and again, this is like in my position as a white woman, but like, I am somebody, because I'm so non-threatening looking and because of the privilege of my skin color and my gender and being cis and all of the privileges that I have, when I am in crisis, strangers do help me. Mm. It has been almost zero times in my life when I've been in crisis in a public setting and people haven't sort of flocked to me. I once got overheated on the subway in New York City threw up and fainted. Oh, my and, God. And, but, like, I think because I was, like, dressed professionally, like, so many people rushed to me. If I had been a different skin color, a different gender, looked different in any number of ways, people would have assumed I was drunk on drugs, whatever. And instead, somebody, like, carried me upstairs and put me in a cab. So I think that Hermione is just... She's, like, used to grown-ups helping her when she's in crisis. And that is absolutely a privilege that she has. And it's also the way we should all be treating each other, even if I was a different color and looked differently. That's exactly what anybody should have done. Absolutely. 
The other thing about Umbridge is that obviously she's taken away Hermione and Harry's wand and she doesn't let them use hers, which fair enough. Like I would completely do the same thing. Totally, except for her language of like the ministry values my life more than they value yours. But that's true. Oh my God, though, which is what a heinous thing to say. Of course it's true. We as a country value my life than any of the millions of black men in prison. But like just so disgusting, just so disgusting to use that as a bragging bargaining chip. So ugly. But it opened up this question for me about inheritance and wands. Because we know, you know, from book one, of course, how a wizard is matched with a wand. And it has this sort of like, when two become one (laughs) feel, right? Like you find your lover in your wand or something. I have so many questions about, does that mean that when a wizard dies or a witch dies, it's the end of the wand or are wands passed down, especially if you don't have the money to buy these new things? Does that mean, you know, that, that there's a better fit if there's a blood relationship from parent to child than if you're an adopted child to that person's wand, right? We know that bloodlines are so central in kind of wizarding culture. It made me think that wands are not just a, a symbol of my connection and my individual kind of magical powers, but actually might have something to say about my family, right? You think of kind of swords being passed down in like medieval families. I don't think about that. <laughs> Maybe there's something similar, like that certain wands get passed down. And as we know, there are ones that have, you know, like the elder wand that has this folklore around it of these stories of, you know, people that it has killed or, or spells that it has cast. And so that these objects that get passed down themselves contain stories that are bigger than the person who's using it. Well, we know that Neville inherited his father's wand. Right. And so, you know, like Neville's becoming better at magic anyway. But, you know, Neville's wand breaks at the end of this book and he gets a new wand and maybe a better pairing, right, with this wand. And he becomes exponentially better at magic. And I'm sure that it's like a mixed inheritance. There must be something really nice about having his dad's wand, but it's just like doesn't quite fit him. Well, or does it actually have other gifts, right? Like the things that we inherit might not always be as fast or work as well or look as pretty, but they have this layer of story and meaning and connection to us, which make it more than it is. And so I'm wondering, maybe there's actually magic in those memories that that are passed on, especially for someone like Neville, who has such a uh, heartbreaking relationship with his father who is still alive, but so beyond any sort of traditional relationship. I'm actually wondering if we invert that idea of it's the new one that helps him get better at magic. And it's actually, in fact, that the like residue of, of magical skill that's in his father's wand that helps him make these first steps that we see in the DA. That's really beautiful. I remember for my high school graduation, my grandmother gave me, my grandmother was an artist And she only ever made two pieces of jewelry, and she made matching rings for my cousin and I. Hmm. And she gave me mine for my high school graduation. And I thought it was the ugliest thing I'd ever seen in my life. (laughs) And that, like, now I was going to have to wear it whenever I saw my grandma. And I was like, thanks. And my cousin came up to me, and she's seven years older than I am. And she was like, just so you know, I hated it when I got it, and I love it now. Hmm. And and it's true. I love it now. I, like, wear it when I go to weddings or, like, it's a special occasion item in my life. And so there was just this moment of wisdom with Nicole where she was like, you will like it one day. I was also disappointed. I love that. So, Vanessa, here's a question. You know, we often think about inheritance as something, maybe it's beautiful silver or or it's a picture that someone painted or whatever. 
and it's a treasure, right? And your responsibility, if you inherit it, is to make sure it passes on to the next generation. There's this kind of unending connection through time that this object is going to travel through. But so many of the things that we inherit are there to be used, right? So like a wand is a great example. Neville inherited this wand and it's not there to sit as like an interesting object. He's learning how to do magic with it. And it breaks. And it breaks. And so that's my question. Is something we inherit supposed to be forever or is it supposed to be used and therefore it's going to have an end date because wear and tear and life happens, you know? So I come from a very specific perspective on this, which is like nothing lasts forever. Use it. Like my family doesn't have anything because of World War II. Like nothing goes back further than 1946. and. You know, my family, like, my mom has scanned every single photo, and I know we made fun of her for that a little while ago, but she's, like, obsessed with making sure that we can't lose photos. But other than photos, my grandfather used to buy my grandmother jewelry specifically for the weight of the gold in case they needed to, like, escape communism again. You could look like you were just wearing a bracelet, but really you were wearing something that was worth something you could sell at the other in your next country. Wow. So like, I'm like, this stuff is meant to be used. And you've been to my house. You know that my entire apartment is decorated in art that my grandmother made. But like, you can't control whether you get to hold on to things anyway. So I'm so struck by that, Vanessa, because I think, you know, for people who haven't had that family experience, there's this complete reverse, right? It's like, oh, well, this is the good China that we don't use. And I'm like, Hello, it's China. Right? Like it's it's supposed to be enjoyed. And unless it's in a museum, in which case this is a different conversation, I'm like, the whole joy and the meaning making of it is that we use it. Because if it just sits there, actually we lose the memories that are connected to it. It, it makes it just an object that you then, you know, when someone passes away, you're like, oh, gosh, well, I don't want this pile of stuff. Yeah. And I like I have all of my grandparents stuff out and I use it all the time. And it's fun. People like then ask me about it. Right. Mm. They're like, this is such a weird plate. What is this? And I'm like, my grandma bought it in wherever. And I get to like talk about my grandma. So it it keeps her alive more. That's what inheritance is. It's the chance to talk about the people who gave it to us, right? If you're just buying, like, old plates at an estate sale, like, it's just a plate. But, like, this plate is your grandmother's plate. Like, the inheritance is the story that comes with the thing. And I think that that's part of what appeals to people about antiquing, that the item has a story, even if you don't necessarily know the people who have the story attached to it. But, like, there is something special about being like, oh, my God, this thing has been in existence for thousands of years. And how many people have laid eyes on this and how many people used to touch this and on and on. I also have that feeling about sequoia trees, though. I'm like, how many squirrels have lived in you? Like, how many birds have you housed? But I think this also points to another difference between buying something that's old or or being in touch with something that's old and an inheritance. Because an inheritance is by its nature a gift. You're never paying for it. Like it's it's something that's passed on to you. It's given to you. And so maybe that's why we do have that feeling with sequoia trees because it is a gift, right? Like it is passed down to you in a way that buying something beautiful and old at, a, at an auction or, or in a store, it, it's wonderful, but it is different. Like there isn't this kind of grace-filled, this is for you and you have you don't have to do anything in order to receive it. I thought you were about to tell me that sequoia trees were not my inheritance and I was going to fight you. And so I'm glad that you were like, no, no, sequoia trees are your inheritance. I was like, 
I'm from California. They are mine. All of them. (laughs) So we've been talking a lot about Neville and and his inheritance of this wand. But another inheritance that I do want to talk about is this sense of purpose that Neville has. In the second half of the chapter, there's so much negotiation about who's going to the Department of Mysteries and who's not. Is it a negotiation or is Harry just being a bit of a (laughs) D-bag? Yeah, I mean, Harry, whatever. There's chaos around who's coming and who's not. And I think that everybody is going for their own reason. But I do think that Neville is going because of an inherited sense of purpose. I think he is like, nope, this is a personal fight for me. And he obviously doesn't know that Bellatrix is going to be there. But I just really, as somebody who is the grandchild and child of people who have survived systemic trauma, I, like, really feel for Neville. I'm like, this is my fight. It's not my godfather, but it's my fight. And it's his fight. You know, they're going to the Hall of Prophecies, which is just as much about Neville as it is about Harry. And again, he obviously doesn't know that. But it's just so interesting to me that he feels such a strong pull to go. And that it turns out that, like, this sense of inherited right to go and fight is absolutely validated. And it's it's valid even if it hadn't been factually validated. But I think that sometimes we get these inherited senses of purpose, right? Yes, I completely agree with that. And I think we see something similar happening with the Weasleys in this kind of epic conversation of, of who's going to fight and who isn't. The first thing that happens is that Harry and Hermione are like, what are you doing here? How did you get out? And they kind of describe the various jinxes and curses that they use to you know, escape from the, from the Inquisitorial squad. And we won't ask too many questions about how they managed to escape. But one detail that we learn is that Ginny you know, hurls this incredible bat bogey hex. And it's described in some detail so that when Harry dismisses that Ginny shouldn't come to the to the Department of Mystery. She's like, hello, who got us here? Hello, who survived Voldemort in book two? Like, I'm older than you were when you started fighting Voldemort. Like, I have every right to be here. And I feel like, especially even though in the face of Ron also saying, like, you shouldn't come, he kind of takes on this Molly character, you know, like, I want to protect you. Also just like paternalistic older brother or whatever. In a way that's a little gross. Yeah. But Ginny really claims her inheritance of like, I am part of this fight. Like, it's a family fight. And especially with the twins gone, I feel like she's she's fulfilling that extra Weasley manpower or woman power, we should say, in this particular fight. And she's going to be absolutely necessary. Well, and her father was the one who was attacked last time, too. Oh, my goodness. I hadn't even thought about in that. In the exact same situation where Harry, Harry saved her father's life last time he had a dream like this. And it hadn't occurred to me until we read this book this time how much Ginny sees herself as stepping into Fred and George's role. Yeah. She keeps bringing them up, right? She's just like, well, the twins taught me that if you grow up with Fred and George, you learn how. Oh, I was stealing Fred and George's brooms. Right. There is a closeness between Fred, George, and Ginny that I had not seen until this book. And I do think that, like we talked about with Fred and George leaving, maybe being part of why Ron was able to win this Quidditch match. Fred and George leaving has created an opportunity for Ginny to really step into her own and be like, they taught me and I have inherited some scrappiness and silliness and braveness. And like she is really stepping into this role entirely. Well, and there's an echo even of how the twins leave Hogwarts, right, flying. We're going to see this group of kids also leaving Hogwarts flying. So there's some interesting connections there, which I hadn't noticed. And I do think that Ginny is now talking about Fred and George all the time because they've left, right? And I feel like she misses them. And so she's just, you know, like when you have a crush on someone, you just like to say their name all the time Mm. or any number of things. My grandfather died a little over a year ago and 
My mom called me the other day and she was like, it's really hard to do Passover without Papa, mm. right? And like there are just certain things that bring them up. And I, I think that, you know, Jenny is stepping into this Fred and George role, but it's only because they're not there anymore. And inheritance is, they are gifts, but they are also often attached to, to real loss. Yeah, and frankly, we nearly only ever inherit things when someone has died, right? Or or when they've passed away in some way. Except my sequoia trees. They're always there. So Casper, we are now going to be doing Sacred Imagination, in which we invite everybody to really put themselves into the situation. And so in this moment, there are many characters. We can choose to be any of the, what I'm going to now call the sacred six. Oh, I love that. Thank you. I just came up with it. So we can be Ginny, Luna, Neville, Hermione, Harry, or Ron in order of importance. (laughs) Just kidding. So if you can, close your eyes. Really just try to imagine yourself into the situation. Remember, you're in the Forbidden Forest. It's dark. Harry and Hermione are covered with Grop's blood. And here we go. Well, we'll have to fly, won't we, said Luna, in the closest thing to a matter-of-fact voice that Harry had ever heard her use. Okay, said Harry irritably, rounding on her. First of all, We aren't doing anything, if you're including yourself in that. And second of all, Ron's the only one with a broomstick that isn't being guarded by a security troll. So, I've got a broom, said Ginny. Yeah, but you're not coming, said Ron angrily. Excuse me, but I care what happens to Sirius as much as you do, said Ginny. Her jaw set so that her resemblance to Fred and George was suddenly striking. You're two, Harry began. I'm three years older than you were when you fought you-know-who over the Sorcerer's Stone, she said fiercely. And it's because of me that Malfoy stuck back in Umbridge's office with giant flying bogeys attacking him. Yeah, but we are all in the DA together, said Neville quietly. It was all supposed to be about fighting you-know-who, wasn't it? And this is the first chance we've had to do something real. Or was it all just a game or something? No, of course it wasn't, said Harry impatiently. Then we should come too, said Neville simply. We want to help. That's right, said Luna, smiling happily. Harry's eyes met Ron. He knew that Ron was thinking exactly what he was. If he could have chosen any members of the DA, in addition to himself, Ron, and Hermione, to join him in the attempt to rescue Sirius, he would not have picked Ginny, Neville, or Luna. So, Casper, who were you in this scene, and what were you thinking about? I was Ron. Mm. And there's a couple things that really struck me. Actually, that ending is so... Interesting, right? Harry thinks that Ron is thinking the same thing as he is. We don't know that. Mm -mm. And if it's a choice between going just the three of them, Ron, Harry, and Hermione, or having Luna and Neville with them, I think Ron would prefer to have those two extra bodies on hand. Fair enough, he might not have wanted, you know, them out of any choice that he could have had. But I think at this point, like, the more the better. So I'm just seeing more complexity. And second, I'm wondering to what extent his performance of saying, Ginny, I don't want you to come, is true. Or if he's actually grateful when the kind of decision is made that she's coming to. I guess I felt 
Ron's ambivalence in this whole situation. You know, it's it's towards the end of the summer term, so you know we're going to fight Voldemort soon. And so I'm wondering if Ron is like, well, might as well take a bigger army. I, I don't know. I also wonder if for Ron, he, he doesn't want Ginny to come in part because he's like, I'll be distracted being worried about you. Yeah, although they've just had this shared experience of getting out of Umbridge's office. So p- yeah. part of me is thinking that Ron actually sees more capacity and skill in these three others than Harry does in this moment, which is why I'm trying to point to that, you know, that assumption of Harry's that they're thinking the same thing. I don't think they are. How about you? Who, who were you in the story? I was Neville, which I think it's because we were just talking about how I identify with Neville to a certain extent. And the moment where he's like, was it all just a game to you? Mm. I think it's a genuine question. You know, it says he says these things quietly. I don't think he's like being mean or rhetorical. He's really like, was this nothing to you? And, you know, as we've talked about on the podcast before, my biggest fear is that people think I'm stupid and that, like, I don't know the ways in which they think I'm stupid or more succinctly that that I'm foolish in ways that I don't know that I'm foolish. And that's what I see in Neville where he's like, I look like a fool in Snape's class all the time. I get treated like a fool all the time. I'm this guy who forgets everything. But I thought I was part of something with Dumbledore's army. And are you telling me that that wasn't real either? And that there's like a real potential hurt here. I think that he offers a really helpful reframing of like, this was supposed to be about fighting Voldemort. And I think this also gets back to, you know, Hermione sold the DA for all sorts of different reasons, right? Mm. She sold it so you could be good at your OWLs. She sold it because Umbridge isn't teaching you. But Neville signed up to fight Voldemort. Yeah, Neville did not sign up for his OWLs. And so he was like, I joined this club for this reason. And are you telling me that like, I signed up for a false bill of goods and I just, my heart broke for him in this moment. And I guess I always saw this scene as like sort of Aaron Sorkin dialogue of like, what about this? And what about that? And Neville sort of breaks through and is just like, wait a minute. I'm also really struck by the context in which they're talking, right? They're, they're just inside the forbidden forest. So we know it's kind of darker and in this conversation, there's a lot of disagreement. There's a lot of misunderstanding of motivation. And I'm just thinking that the lack of actual light, like they might not be able to see each other's faces well. In a moment, some of them are not going to be able to see the Thestrals as they come towards the kind of fresh blood on on Harry and Hermione. So there's a lot of that sight imagery of not quite understanding or not quite seeing the same thing really struck me in this reading as well. Yeah. They're all sort of dripping in blood, right? They all have injuries. Ron's mouth is dripping worse than usual. Mm. Harry and Hermione are covered in Grop's blood. Ginny is scratched up. Neville has a big lump. Like, they're already warriors, right? Yeah. Like, what is this extra, like, barrier to entry that Harry is just throwing down because he has this, like, weird isolationist, you know, point of view? They've already been fighting, And the other thing that you made me think of with your Ron point is that Hermione doesn't say anything. And I wonder if she feels that same ambivalence that you're, you know, we're speaking to Ron. Like maybe Harry thinks that he and Ron have this understanding, but maybe it's actually Hermione and Ron who have an understanding and are like, Mm. I don't know. Like these might not be the three people I would pick and I don't quite know how I'm going to get there. 
but like we need all the help we can get. And Hermione also is probably feeling like, and I still don't necessarily think this is right. real. Right. And so like maybe is hoping that they won't figure out how to get to London. And she's silent in this moment. And I wonder if it's because of just like all of the ambivalences. Oh, I think that's so smart. And sometimes at least I stay silent because then if everything goes badly, it's not my fault. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because she's like, I don't have a plan. Right. I don't have a plan. I don't really think this is real. I'm not going to be able to stop Harry. But like you all fight it out and then it's not my bad. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, Vanessa. This week's voicemail is from Kimia. Hello, HPSC team. After listening to your episode on the chapter The Second Task from the Goblet of Fire and your special episode Blessing Fleur de la Cour, I want to offer Fleur an additional blessing. There's a moment after Harry resurfaces from the lake, having brought back not just Ron, but Gabrielle as well, where Fleur throws herself towards them to get her sister out, and she later comes around to thank both Harry and Ron personally. While Harry's believing that the hostages were in actual danger can be attributed to his hero complex and his age, Fleur is older and wiser, so her panic in this scene struck me as strange. Moreover, she's someone who's very careful about the image she presents to the world, and she knows the importance of how people perceive her. Yet, here we see her love for her sister not only makes her throw appearances out the window, but it also eclipses her competitiveness as she's not even thinking about or humiliated by her defeat and personally thanks Harry and Ron, who she has good reason to avoid. I relate to that because I'm someone who values logic and reason above anything else, but I frequently find myself acting against logic when I see my younger sister in situations I'm wary of or making decisions I disagree with. She and I moved to Canada from the Middle East two years ago. Family is given a lot more value and priority in Middle Eastern culture, and here in Canada I find a constant face-off, between my mama bear instincts and the individualistic culture. I constantly have to remind myself that it's her life, her decisions, good or bad. So I want to offer a blessing to anyone who finds their love for their younger siblings or family members at odds with their core personal values or that of the society they live in. It is a very fine balance to keep, and Floor, in my opinion, does this beautifully in this scene. And I want to bless her for that as well. Thank you for the podcast. I also want to bless all of the wonderful older siblings who would do anything for their younger siblings. Me. (laughs) With your mama bear instincts? Yeah. I don't know why, because he's, like, taller than me and can beat me up. But I would commit crimes for my younger brother. Please don't use this against me. (laughs) FBI. Well, and Kimia's voicemail really directly connects to what we were just talking about, this relationship between Ron and Ginny, Ginny wanting to do something and and Ron feeling this kind of protective parental role, you know, and it might have something to do with it. If he really feels like he's about to enter a very, very dangerous place where he may not make it, you know, he wants his younger sibling to survive and make it through. And I, you know, like I joke about the ways that I am protective of my younger brother, but I also really do believe that you have to let people make their own mistakes. Like, Ron has to let Jenny go. And it's not a mistake. Like, we have to let people younger than us grow up. Yeah, if Ron hadn't had his experiences, he wouldn't be who he is today. And so Jenny's about to have a really intense experience. And as she says, it's not my first rodeo. You yeah. know, I was abducted by Voldemort. Lucky you, right? You get to forget that. Thanks, Kimia. So, Casper, it's now time to offer a blessing. Who would you like to bless this week? 
I wanted to bless Grop. You know, we've not really talked about the injuries that he sustains. He, he's shot with 50 arrows into his face. I mean, into his eyeballs. It's very, very graphic. You know, we know that this blood is pouring down in droplets the size of pebbles onto Hermione and Harry. And so I, I guess this blessing is for Grop and for anyone who is perhaps looking for family or just missing family that's far away. People have unexpectedly left the other echo of this moment in the books is the language barrier. And it makes me think of people who are asylum seekers or refugees or people who are struggling to get through border patrol or, or sent away, actively hounded away at the borders, you know, who have family that they're trying to reunite with and that they're, they're unable to, especially with this language barrier where Grop is saying words, he's he's learnt this language, he's trying to communicate and he's he's actually saying something. But you know, it takes a while before only Hermione is able to understand and hear what he's saying. So for anyone who's in that situation, a blessing to you also. How about you, Vanessa? My blessing is much more shallow in comparison to that. <laughs> um, I was really wrestling with myself in this chapter. I find Luna very annoying in this chapter. But she has this really beautiful moment that I'm like, okay, this is the plus of Luna, right? Like she's busy observing everything, which you talked about last week. She's like looking out the window and in all of her Luna-ness, there are these benefits. And I think that she has this great line in this chapter where she says, I believe there are six of us. (laughs) It sort of ends the fight, right? She's like, there are six of us. We need six Thestrals. And, like, you're going to lose this fight. There are six of us. It feels, and again, this is, like, your idea of Luna as priestess, but it feels like communion being offered. It's just a fact being offered, Mm. right? It's like, there are six of us. Like, who are we kidding? We will break the bread into six pieces. We will all go together. If there were eight of us, eight of us would go. If there were only the three of you, three of you would go. There are six. I just want to bless Luna for showing me that there are other ways to get to the right conclusions and for her clarity of like, hey, dudes, there are six of us. <laughs> so, You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the episode. Or you can come and join the over a thousand people who are supporting us on Patreon. You can leave us a review on iTunes so that Casper can get a smile and you can send us a voicemail at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. We listen to every single one. I'm going to be in London on June 18th and then en Paris on June 22nd. And I hope to see you abroad soon. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 34, The Department of Mysteries, through the theme of concealment. This episode is produced by Not Sorry Productions, executive produced by Ariana Nedelman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of Night Vale Presents. Thanks to Kimia for this week's voicemail. And as ever, Julia Argy, Maggie Needham, Danny Agin, and of course, Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you next week. Bye. And they were like, we do not help humans. And so- <laughs> Just so listeners know, he did a robot dance. Yeah, yeah, it's a robot centaur. I don't know if that's in the text or if that was in my sacred imagination. <laughs> <laughs> I love that anything that you imagine is now a sacred imagining. I am Blaine. <laughs> sacred centaur. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. okay, so right. the sentence, in case she cuts that gem. I'm sure she will.